Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, a weekly interview show about art, craft, and creativity. This episode of Craft Sanity is sponsored by the Etsy Dallas Jingle Bash. Texas listeners, be sure to mark your calendars for Saturday, November 21st from 1 to 7 p.m. at the Sons of Herman Hall. Admission is free. Find out more at EtsyDallas.com. Welcome to episode 107 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. I'm excited to be back at the mic, and I'm ready to bring you a very interesting chat that I had recently with Cal Patch. She is just fantastic. I really enjoyed talking to her, and I am absolutely in love with her new book, which is called Design It Yourself Clothes, Pattern Making Simplified. This book is basically a dream come true for an aspiring maker of clothes (laughs) like me. I have a lot of store-bought clothes in various sizes scattered about my closet. And to be honest, I can't say that I have too many outfits in my closet that are absolutely thrilling to me. The clothing budget is reduced and uh, honestly, I can't remember the last item of clothing I bought for myself. But meanwhile, I have fabric in abundance all around. And even some of the clothes I'm not wearing, some of that could be repurposed into something new. So Cal's book comes at a fantastic time. In fact, as soon as I opened it, I was emailing the publisher looking to get in contact with Cal. Basically, you know, if you can make clothes that actually fit you, it makes the whole process so much more rewarding because when you get to the end and you sew on that last button, it's going to be just so much more satisfying than if you buy something ready-made, off-the-rack, just a little bit about Cal. She lives in New York. She was in the city and she's kind of moved out to the country. At last we chatted when this interview was recorded a little while ago. She was actually looking for a patch of land to start kind of a crafty little farm. So I invite you to settle in with the project and don't be too surprised if by the end of this interview you're racing off (laughs) to buy a copy of Cal's book. So my name is Cal Patch. I'm 40 years old, currently residing in Kerhonkson, New York, um, though I say currently because I'm actually staying with friends while I am finding my own little house and farm. So you're going to be a farmer? Uh, a crafty farmer. A crafty That's farmer. My goal. Yes. <laughs> it's so hilarious because I like I grew up in the city and I want to be a farmer so bad. It's like like a craft. Mm-hmm. Farm. You know, have like a small little farm. Teach workshops on the farm. Like not actually exactly. um, doing any major farming. Just like small no, garden no. farming. Yes. My version of farming is very different than traditional farming. Yeah. Well, it sounds it sounds wonderful. So you're kind of shopping for the perfect place right now. I I think I've found it, but I'm still feeling very superstitious about counting my chickens. But the deal is in process. Well, that's great. Well, we wish you the best on that. Thank you. So, Cal, why don't you take me back to your creative roots at the beginning there where all this started. I understand from what I've read about you, I think, on your blog. I think it was either – I think it's on your blog that you write about how you used to pull a wagon – like a painted wagon and sell little handmade items door to door, which I think is just such a great, I'm picturing this small, this, this little girl that's selling things. And I think little girls with wagons that are painted sales usually go pretty well because people think it's really cute. <laughs> you might think so, but, but they didn't go really well. 
Sales were not so good at that time, but um, it I did have a wagon that I had painted, and it kills me that I do not have a photograph of this wagon, but it was your classic red wagon, but I had painted it white, and I painted, like, flowers and sunshines, and I actually had, like, Beatles lyrics <laughs> painted on it, like, here comes the sun, and good day, sunshine. <laughs> if I had a picture, it would be priceless to me, but... So, yeah, my sister and I just, we used to make the silliest things, like painted rocks, and take them up and down the street and my mother was completely mortified that we would do that um but they weren't big sellers often people would like say well here's a quarter but you can keep your paperweight oh, which is kind of a slam you know when you you're like you would have been thrilled to give them the paperweight for a quarter you know yeah 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 well i used to sell drawings for a penny or a button and I almost pre- I preferred buttons actually, which you know economically was probably not maybe the best mode because you can't cash them in. But I they really, may have been more valuable. Actually, they were definitely though, more valuable. Buy, to yeah, if you buy and if, even financially, if you try to buy a button, you rarely can buy one for a penny. So I think it was actually a wise investment ahead yeah. of its time. Now <laughs> I'm I'm probably more interested in getting money than buttons right now because I have a lot. Of now buttons. yeah, I have a lot of buttons, yeah. and I found that I can't I... really use them as um, in commerce very effectively. So no, it's yeah. true. But so so it sounds like for you, did your mom do a lot of crafty things, or was this something that you got? Not from... really. She was a single mom in the seventies, and so she was just trying to like work two jobs and keep everything, you know, keep a roof on our heads and food on the table. So she did a little bit of sewing, um, like Halloween costumes for my sister and myself, but they were not, they didn't go over very well with us. We were not the kind of kids who were wearing handmade things and very proud of it. We were usually sort of embarrassed when our mom made us something. <laughs> well, you know, times but, were different back then. Now it's like hip to have homemade stuff. But I remember exactly. when I was a kid too. I mean, yeah, I think when in the seventies and eighties, it wasn't as cool to be wearing. It was wearing... perceived as a necessity, I think. Right, and, right. But mainly it was just Halloween costumes or nightgowns. She didn't really try to make our clothes. I think she knew better than that. Um, but my grandmother has always been extremely crafty, and she she does just about every craft there is, even things like tatting and the more obscure ones. Um, but my mom, I think, was just too busy to really get well, into yeah, it. Well, yeah, it sounds like it. How many siblings do, do, do you have? Just one. I just have one sister. Okay. Um, but I always say that the 70s was kind of like the heyday of craft because... Every, like, even, I think everyone was crafty in the 70s, and there used to be craft stores everywhere, and they were so good, so much better than what we have now, in my opinion. And um, I was big into Girl Scouts, and we did a lot of, you know, decoupaging and making strange things out of styrofoam balls and (laughs) pipe cleaners and all that kind of stuff. So there was... 
there it was a crafty time for sure. Yeah, and it, it's funny how things are kind of reverting back. To, people are trying to reclaim that now. The people that have yeah. been the craft are trying to get it back, and then there's some of us who just kept crafting the whole time. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think I was just kind of a typical kid, though. I don't think I was, like, an extremely crafty child or anything. But I grew up in rural Ohio, so there wasn't a whole lot to do. And I kind of think that that did make me more creative because we often had to sort of make our own, you know, games or projects or ideas. And I think that's good. I think kids now tend to be bombarded with a lot of overstimulation and products and stuff. And I think growing up in the country and just running around in the woods all the time was definitely a great way to grow up. Um, so then when I was in high school, I was, I was definitely into art, but I kind of realized early on that to go to college and be an art major and try to actually be an artist for a living was sort of impractical. And I'm actually very practical, even though I'm creative, which is kind of a rare combination. So somehow I got the idea that I would major in fashion design because it seemed like a creative, artistic pursuit, and yet my my big rationale was that everybody wears clothes. <laughs> well, it's a pretty good rationale. I mean, it's, I mean, that's with the exception of some nudists that are in um, not a majority of our population. Thankfully, um, you know, everyone on the streets wearing clothes of some kind. So, it's pretty true. Very logical deduction. Yes. It was still kind of naive, though, because the reality is that the garment industry is not the most creative place in the world. And (laughs) even though in college we spent hours and hours doing watercolor illustrations and, you know, being really creative, you know, making... We did a lot of the kind of stuff they do on Project Runway, like make a garment out of vegetables or something like that. And... It didn't really prepare us so well for the actual world of clothing that people would want to wear every day. But when I did enter that world, the fashion industry, I kind of realized pretty quick that it was not really the right place for me because it's actually just very corporate and predictable, you know, even though people are waiting on pins and needles to find out what's going to be the hot thing for the next season it's really actually not that hard to figure out (laughs) and just the whole concept that this industry is creating a fictional need for new products every season you know they they tell people that what they bought two months ago is out and they need to buy the new thing that's in and it's kind of a scam really (laughs) (laughs) it just kind of like turned me off and the whole um you know the the way that everything's made overseas and more and more inexpensively all the time and the people that are making the stuff are not getting paid well and treated well and yet people here just love to shop at the discount stores, you know, and it's amazing how cool the stuff you can get at places like H&M are, but 
you know, and I used to wear all H&M too, but I finally realized, you know, if I'm a clothing designer, I'm tired of people saying, oh, I love what you're wearing. Did you make it? And I had to say no because I couldn't afford, you know, the kind of clothes I wanted. And, and I didn't often have enough time to make my own clothes. Right. And then finally one day I said, that's enough. I, I've i got to start, you know, it will take a long time, but I'm going to try to only wear clothes I made and eventually. <laughs> it's a slow transition to go from you know, the store-bought wardrobe to oh, the entirely yeah. self-made wardrobe, but I'm working on it. Yeah. Now, how how much stuff have you made? I mean, do you have a pretty full closet now of handmade garments? I do, but on the other hand, you know, I when you say full closet, I would I wouldn't exactly say full because I think one of the things you start to realize, especially if you're going to make all your own clothes, is that you don't really need that many, you know, like exactly. I, when I used to work in the clothing industry, I used to bring home bags full of clothing because we would get all these samples that had been um, shipped over from the factories and they had a little hole in them or they would have a stamp that said sample because that way they could get through customs and not have to pay duty. And then those clothes would all just get thrown away at the end of the season, and this drove me crazy. So I used to bring them home and patch the holes or scrub out the sample or put an applique over it or something. And so I used to have tons and tons of clothes, like more than anyone could possibly wear. And I realize now, you know, you only need a couple of each thing, and you know, I think it's it's more kind of like the French way of dressing. They always say that a French woman will spend $300 on one suit or something that she wears twice or three times a week, and every year she might buy a new one, whereas if we have $300, we would tend to buy about 20 different things with it, you know, and right. then next year we would buy 20 more and throw out a lot of the old ones that were falling apart because they were not quality made. So it's it's sort of like that. You start to really appreciate the quality of things and the time it takes to make them. And so you don't need, you know, 25 tops and 50 skirts and 30 dresses. Right. And, and also I know the problem I've had is I, I tend to keep things like way longer than I should. Because I look at Me, now, yeah. I look at the closet of clothes and I'm like, oh, well, that... I don't want to wear that anymore, but that's fabric. And I'm like, oh, man, so now I'm like, now I'm thinking about repurposing. But you don't have the time to repurpose, but you don't want to get rid of the fabric. Yeah, so yeah. it creates this whole spiral yeah. of problems. So if you make your own clothes, you're not going to have, like, abundant just clothes sitting around. No. Um, but, well, I think you've raised a, a great point here, and I think a lot of people now are going to be kind of looking skeptically at their closets, like, what am I doing exactly <laughs> in this space, you know? And but, but I, what I want to do though is kind of um, backtrack just a tad here. Um, and so you went, you had gone to high school, and then you decided, you know, you wanted to study fashion design. Where did you go? What school did you go to to study fashion design? Well, like I said, I grew up in Ohio, and I I tried to convince my mother to let me go to Parsons, which was my first choice, or FIT in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, because those, you know, even in Ohio, I somehow learned that those were the schools that you want to go to. 
However, she was not so into letting a 17-year-old move to New York and go to college. (laughs) I can't really say that I blame her. Yeah, I can yeah. (laughs) Also, you know, when you go out of state, the tuition is doubled. So she said I could go anywhere I wanted within the state of Ohio. So there were two options that had fashion design. One was um, Kent State University, which apparently now seems fairly well-known. They have a fashion museum, and I think they're actually a pretty good school, but I would have been in one of the first graduating classes. It was a brand-new program at the time, okay. so I felt like that was a little un- unknown, and it was only about 40 minutes from where I grew up, so that didn't seem far enough. So I went to <laughs> University of Cincinnati, okay. which actually had a great um, program. They're They're better known for uh, architecture and industrial design and graphic design, but they have fashion design too. And it's a program where you actually go to college for five years and you don't get summers off, but you do, they don't call them internships because you actually get paid a very little bit, but it's called a cooperative education program. And so I did six paid internships of three months each before I graduated. Wow. And I did most of them in New York City, and that's really where I got my education. Yeah, that sounds like a great program that they have the students actually working in real situations. Yeah, it was quite amazing because by the time I graduated, I actually sort of could see that the fashion world was not quite what I thought it was. Um, but I had worked in several kinds of different companies and I knew what I didn't want to do and it really narrowed down my field of what I did want to do. And, um, and I also got a job right away out of school from someone I had worked with on one of those jobs and it was a really amazing program. So where did you start out? What was your first job out of college? Um, my first job was, uh, at a very small company that doesn't exist anymore. It was called 90. And I, I was working with, I was an assistant designer, and the head designer was a woman I had worked with when I had interned at Adrian Bidadini during school. And um, it was a perfect little assistant design beginning job. You know, I did all the classic things that you do as an assistant designer, which is like, sourcing the buttons and doing a million sketches and helping with the sample room, get the samples made. And, um, it was really fun. And it was, it was like a classic design assistant job and I loved it. Um, but it was a very small company and I didn't really relate to the clothing that they made, uh, which has always been a very important thing to me. I'm not interested in designing clothes that I wouldn't want to wear. <laughs> which I can understand because so, you're spending so much time working. To me, it's obvious, but yeah. a lot of people, I mean, you know, everyone can't work somewhere where they want the clothes, but it really helps. You it's know, I mean, when you hear yeah. the stories of most big designers, like, the one that's just coming to my mind is Donna Karen. You know, she always says, like, she started making clothes because she couldn't find what she wanted to wear. And I think that's the prime motivation as a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for 
about a year, and then I, well, actually, just to back up for one second, when I got out of college, I sent out letters to the places I want to work, and there was a list of places that are labels, most of which were carried at my favorite store, Urban Outfitters, and so I, I wrote... I don't know how many total letters I wrote, but I know I wrote five letters that all actually were the same company, which was Urban Outfitters, uh, but I didn't know this at the time. Oh, my goodness. Because I, funny. This was long before there were free people stores, and free people just used to be one of the labels that okay. Urban Outfitters produced. So <laughs> I wrote letters to free people, Echo Tay, which was their dress label, um, Anthropology at the time was also just a label, and I wrote a letter to them and to Urban itself. And a woman called me one day, and she said, you know, I think you really want to work for me because I got five letters from you. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed, but I had no idea they were all the same company. <laughs> and most people often still don't, except that now now they all have, they have stores for each label, so it's a little more obvious, but, um, so she, I interviewed with her actually, but the thing was I had just moved to New York and they were based in Philadelphia and they only had a job opening in Philadelphia at the time. So I didn't really want to move, um, because, you know, my dream was to live in New York city and be a designer. So Mm -hmm. they said, you know, we wish we had something in New York, but you know, we don't, and that's too bad. And so I, then I got the other job at 90 because it, you know, it it was in New York, basically. But a year later, Urban contacted me and said that they now did have a job opening in New York and would I be interested. So I, of course, hopped on that because at the time they were just my fantasy company. They seemed like the only company that sort of made clothes that were creative and interesting and not just following the trends and the forecasting services and all that stuff. And it was where I liked to shop. So um, to me, it was the ultimate fulfillment of, you know, making the clothes you want to wear. Yeah. And not too bad about a year out of school then, you know, to get over. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, if if I had been willing to move to Philadelphia, I could have been there straight out of school. But I think I did the right thing because yeah. the other job was actually a great experience too. Well, otherwise you probably would, you know, you might be in Philadelphia longer than you wanted to be, you know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You might be looking for happens. a farm in Philadelphia instead of, you know. Yeah, and <laughs> that might be fine. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very glad for the path I chose. Yeah. I, I was in, I lived in New York City for, I think, 18 years until just a few months ago. So that's. How long were you with Urban Outfitters then? I was there for about seven years. And it was great. um, And I loved it. But eventually I just, even though it, it was sort of not truly in the garment industry, like in a traditional kind of way um, because it, the company was and is still based in Philadelphia. And so I kind of liked that because they, they didn't have a lot of the um, just sort of pitfalls of the traditional garment industry, which just kind of runs in this way that 
I'm not really a fan of <laughs> just all the forecasting and trending and, you know, they kind of all just follow each other. And, um, I don't know. I liked that urban was sort of a renegade and doing its own thing. So, um, but eventually it, it, it actually went public while I was there and the more, the bigger it got and the more there was stockholders and stuff like that, they started to be more concerned about, you know, actually how well things sold and not quite as frivolous as it was when I started. And I just started to see that I'm not meant to work for a corporation and I, I needed to be on my own, but it was, I had a great time while I was there. And so what was your next move after you decided to leave? The next move was I opened my own store in the Lower East Side of New York because I really wanted to just make whatever I wanted to make and then sell it directly to a customer. I didn't want to have to do that whole chain of production and showroom and sales rep and all that kind of stuff. Not that I could have afforded to go that route anyway because it's very expensive but I just I really love making things and the trouble with being a designer is in the traditional way you are generally making a sketch and writing out the specs which is the measurements for everything and you send that overseas and then a month or two later you get a sample back and you make corrections on the sample and then couple months later it ships and it's just not as hands-on as I want to be so I opened my own store and I was making clothes and I was also looking for other young independent designers and they sort of found me like I didn't really know how to find these people because I knew the people I wanted to find would be more like making things on their kitchen table at home, right. you know, in the evening, like after they came home from their day job. And I, so I knew, and this was before the internet too, which now everything's different and you can find these kind of people, no problem. But at the time it was like impossible to find sort of undiscovered designers. So, you know, I just opened the store bravely without thinking too much about it. And they found me and it was great. And it was, a really cool place. It was called Patch 155, which was my last name and the address. And it was, you know, a crazy assortment of things. And it was completely out of the way and had no foot traffic at all. But it was really fun. And I met most of my best friends now I met at the time when I had the store because they would find me. Uh, and it was a really cool place. Well, that's really cool. So did you have, were you there all the time? Like, did you make things? Was yes. it like a studio space in a way? Were you making things there? Yes. That was the idea. Like, I knew it was sort of out of the way. And I I knew that everyone says, you know, foot traffic is the most important thing for a retail store. And it is true. I would now agree. But I thought at the time, it was sort of an up-and-coming neighborhood. And, um... I knew it would be slow during the week, but I thought, well, that's fine because I need to be making things, so I'll be in there. I was closed on Mondays and Tuesdays, 
So I thought Wednesday through Friday, I would be in there making stuff and not get a lot of business. And then on the weekends, I thought people would flock from the other neighborhoods and I would do enough business to pay for the rest of the week. But that wasn't really how it happened. It was more like everyone in the neighborhood who was like unemployed or had more time than money on their hands would just come in and hang out with me (laughs) and keep me from doing my work. And (laughs) on the weekends, it really wasn't any different. So there was never a lot of sales, but somehow it just managed to support itself. And I kept freelancing and doing other things um, to pay my own bills. But it was a great experience. And I really wasn't in it for money at all. I, you know, I was glad it at least supported itself and it would have been nice if it could have also paid for me to pay my rent and things, but that wasn't the case, but it was a lot of work and I was there all the time because I couldn't afford to hire anybody else because no one but me was willing to work for free. So Eventually, after, I think it was three and a half years I had the store, while there, I actually started teaching classes, mostly as a way just to get people into the store, because it was very out of the way, and I figured if people walked by and saw nobody in the place, and it was rather a large store, actually, you know, I feel I felt like a lot of people would walk by and kind of peer in and just see me sitting there. And they, if they didn't feel like, you know, engaging in conversation, right. they wouldn't come in. But I felt like if they saw five people sitting around a table doing something and they couldn't tell what it was, it would make them curious. Because New Yorkers are very <laughs> curious, too. And they feel like, oh, if there's a bunch of people in there, there must be something good going on, you know. Like, right, right. You never go in an empty restaurant. You only go walk you want the restaurant that has a line down the block. I guess it's it's really human nature, not just New York nature. But right. I actually started out having free classes just to bring people into the store, and that would have been fine, but then people had no sense of commitment to a free class, so they would come one week, skip the next week, and other people would come, and then the first people would come back the third week, oh, and I would have this... Yeah, it drove me crazy because I, the first thing I started teaching was crochet. And, um, you, you know, really I'd have like. Weeks. Yeah. 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 People at all different levels and it, it got too out of control. So I think I've in, then started charging people something like $30 for four classes or something really cheap, but it just sort of got them, you know, if they had paid, they they came back right and then yeah and that went really well and then I I branched up to sewing and other things we did a lot of like t-shirt workshops and you know just cutting up your t-shirts and making them into new styles without even sewing and I really loved the teaching and people seemed really into it the the beautiful thing about the classes was it was the complete opposite kind of business model as the store because the store meant I had to sit there for eight hours all day hoping someone might come in and buy something, and there were many days where nobody did. I mean, people usually came in, but 
it was rare that anyone bought anything. Yeah. But whereas with a class, people pay in advance for a scheduled two-hour time slot, and you get like five people to come and pay for that two hours, and it's completely the opposite. You know they're coming, and they've already paid, and it's beautiful. And I feel really good about teaching and I don't mind getting paid for it. And somehow selling is still, even though I had my painted wagon roots, I, I've never been a good salesperson. So it's just, somehow it feels slightly like you're pulling something over on someone or even though I completely believe in what I'm selling, I, I'm just not a good salesperson. No, I, I totally understand that because I know that my sister is so talented at sales. She can sell me something I already own, and I will right. think I got a great deal on it. Uh, I mean, seriously. <laughs> like Some people just have instinct, just this instinctive way about selling. And for yeah. me, I almost talk people out of it because I was like, oh, well, you know, you could actually make this. And let me tell me you how. Too. And then I'm like, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I just made I that. I would either yeah. talk them into making it or, <laughs> like, people would come in and they'd say, like, I need a red shirt to wear with this skirt I'm going to wear to a dinner party or something. And they're like, I just want, like, a plain red T-shirt or something. And, of course, I didn't have a plain red T-shirt. But I'd say, well, you know, if you go to, like, H&M or something, oh, geez, you'll yeah. find one for, like, $7. Like, I would actually send people <laughs> to other stores. Because <laughs> I knew if I had a red T-shirt, it would be a really arty, like, weird one that cost $70. And they probably couldn't afford it anyway. And right. No. Meanwhile, you know, the designer is probably my best friend and I talked the customer out of buying my friend's shirt, but it just is just not my nature because I'm like a bargain hunter or I make it myself. So Right, right. Right. So if you're trying to weird. your mindset is different than um someone looking to just buy something exactly. that's already done. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, so so it sounds like you you learned a lot though. It sounds like having the store and having like having the time to actually make your own garments and to make your own designs and see it through from the con- you know conceiving an idea, sketching it out, and then actually making it. Yeah. So you you had that experience. It was great. I I wouldn't trade the store for anything, and I'm glad I had it. But um, so eventually I started to see though that the teaching was it just felt for me definitely much more the right thing to do and having a store was kind of counterproductive right um so i had actually met a friend who who also taught at my store and she taught knitting classes because i didn't know how to knit and so she and i decided to open a craft school and this was um 2002, so it was pretty early on for the craft school, the, like, indie hipster craft school movement. Um, At the time, we didn't know of any others, and it was still, like, early stages of Internet. So, you know, there just wasn't this online craft world like there is now. Mm -hmm. But um, so we decided to open a craft school, and I closed the store. It still is called Make Workshop. I'm not involved with it anymore, but I did that for about five years, and that was also really fun. And 
I basically worked in the studio space during the day on my own stuff and then taught classes most evenings and weekends. And that was very interesting because we just started to really see how this craft movement and how a new generation of people were really, I think at the time that we started, we kind of thought it was our own crazy idea that we were worried that things our grandmothers did, like knitting and crochet, were going to sort of go extinct because nobody seemed to be doing them. And then, so we we were just trying to spread the love ourselves. And then, you know, we started to see that it was actually happening everywhere. And, you know, it makes sense because we, in general, the the universal we do so much on computers and we're so out of touch with, you know, actually making things, you know, like we were talking about before, so, so many things like clothing can be bought so inexpensively and people don't even think about how that $7 t-shirt came to be in the store. Right. And, you know, it's, I see it very much as a parallel with the slow food movement because the same thing is happening with food, but the slow food movement seems a lot more organized and has a lot of uh, promotion about it. Just the fact that people don't realize what they're eating. You know, they don't think about the fact that a chicken McNugget is not food. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's it's so far removed from the days when people had chickens and butchered them themselves. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm not even... It's not about the meat, but like everything, you know, people buy frozen vegetables and they don't, they buy so much processed food that's so far removed from how it came out of the ground or the animal it came from. And I feel like the same thing, that's, I feel like that's what the craft movement is really all about. It's just people forgot that things could be made themselves and they're not even aware that someone is living a really hard unpleasant life to make those really inexpensive clothes that we just take for granted. Yeah, I mean, because if you think about how much time it would take to make a rack of these very cheaply made t-shirts, but like to actually sew all the stitching on there, I mean, if you think about it, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would like, most of us would like to make more than seven dollars an hour and if the whole shirt costs seven dollars, you know, you know, the person didn't did not get seven dollars, you know, for that and you can't really live off seven dollars. I've seen crochet doilies. At oh, the that! Oh, oh my gosh! Store. They make me so it, mad when I see those. It, it makes me like nauseous because crochet cannot be done by machine. There, you know, a lot of knitted things are knit on machines, and right. even that will be very labor intensive. But crochet is absolutely one hundred percent handmade. And when I see a doily at a dollar store, it just makes me ill because I think. I don't even know if that person got paid at all. And I know it takes me probably like six hours to make a doily. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's like um, the most time-consuming kind of crochet, especially for the small, you know, fine. Very fine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they're, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Like, you look at that and you just see them. I mean, craft stores carry those. Yeah, they sell them too, yeah. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, like. It's and people then, 
probably buy, you know, if they're a dollar, they probably buy, like, you know, I can imagine for a wedding or a birthday party, you might buy, like, 30 of them, use them as coasters or something on the table, and probably throw them away if they get all, like, dirty and stained, because you think, oh, it only costs a dollar. It's not worth washing, but, you know, they've lost all sense of the fact that someone actually did make that by well, hand. Yeah, and it kind of just feeds into that whole everything's disposable kind of exactly. mindset, which is like totally just horrifying to people who make things by hand. This all stems from the point of, you know, you're talking about when people just buy things that are cheaply made and made overseas. And that's kind of what led you to be so focused on getting people, teaching people how to make things themselves and appreciate handmade goods yeah so it sounds like that and so you were teaching you said you spent five years um teaching i've spent five years with make make right and then i left to teach at a bunch of other places um the last few years that i was in the city and because i was doing a lot of freelancing and i was trying to also um focus a little more on my own clothes that I make to sell and I had started an Etsy shop and I was doing a lot of craft fairs and things like Renegade and the Craftacular, the two big ones in New York. So I, I just left to um, be on my own and, you know, kind of diversify and start teaching at more places. And then last year I decided that my motto was upstate in 08 because I, I had been wanting to really, I love living in New York City, but I really also want to have an organic garden and chickens and maybe hopefully a couple sheep and goats so I can, because I do spin and I would love to have my own fiber and I just really was craving nature and a better quality of life. Like I lived really inexpensively in the city and you actually can live there kind of cheaply, but it's definitely challenging and you have to miss out on a lot of the cool stuff that your friends are doing. So I, you know, I really have just been craving for years to move back to the country and live a more simple life and spend more time outside and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So I actually made it just by the um, seat of my pants. And New Year's Eve of 08, I moved. (laughs) I love that. I love that because you (laughs) held yourself to that goal. Miraculously, I actually got an offer from some friends to farm sit for them for the winter while they went south. So it was perfect timing. And I moved up here. Um, like I said, New Year's Eve, and from January through April, I was like an instant farmer. I had to take care of this 150-acre farm with seven horses and 12 guinea hens and two cats and then my own dog, and my boyfriend came along with his cat, too. So we had quite a menagerie, and it was great. It was an amazing experience. And I'm actually still here on the same farm because they've actually let me stay um, 
after they came back in April while I continued looking for my own place, which I think is just on the verge of happening. So hopefully very soon I will have my own little mini farm, <laughs> like two acres. That's awesome. But I'm very excited about it. Yeah, as you should be. I think that's wonderful. I'm I'm dreaming of something similar to that. Not in New York. I want to stay in Michigan. So yeah, yeah. So so that's so that's going well. And you're still you're freelancing and or not freelance. I mean you're teaching. But I do I freelance. I do a wide assortment of projects to pay the bills. I and really I'm doing all the same things I was doing in the city. I'm just um, you know feeding chickens and collecting eggs and cleaning horses stalls in between but i i still actually go down to the city for one week every month to teach classes and then i'm trying to establish teaching up here it's just i don't really know a lot of people so i'm having to do the self promotion thing which is not one of my strengths but it's going to happen, and I still do a lot of the freelance work I did from the city, and, you know, I, usually even when I lived there, they would ship me the materials, and I would ship them back, so it, it doesn't even matter that I'm not actually there. Yeah, well, it sounds like you have kind of the best of both worlds, because you're able to continue doing the same things you always did, but then just be in an environment that is exciting to you in the sense that, you know, it's kind of getting back to basics with nature and... Exactly. Having time to breathe and, and all that. So Exactly. Well, and it wouldn't be right to not to go any longer, really, without telling people about this <laughs> pretty major and wonderful <laughs> book that you've just um, come out with, Design It Yourself, Pattern. Uh, okay, let me, let me botch Close. the title here. Why don't, you, why don't you tell the title so I don't goof it up? It's, you know, I, I barely, I, I mess it up all the time, too, because it is kind of a mouthful, but... It's called Design It Yourself Clothes, and then the subtitle is Pattern Making Simplified. Yeah, and where I went wrong is I picked it up and I started reading right to left, um, and the way it's designed on the front of the book, um, it's it's not something you, I should just spontaneously pick up and try to, to spout off here, but um, this, this book is seriously is going to change my life, and I'm not being dramatic or ridiculous about this, or people might I think love- I'm being... Well, I love how excited you are. Well, the thing is, like, I got the little, you know, I get a lot of, you know, PR people and publicists sending me, like, little blurbs about books that are coming mm-hmm. out. And I'm very I'm very fortunate that they even care to take the time to send me that stuff. So I, I do mm-hmm. pay attention to it. But there's so much. I mean, there's so much with craft books out now that sometimes things kind of blur together, you know. And yeah. what stood out, though, when I read the um, the pitch for this book, I was like, wow. This is exactly the kind of book I need right now because I'm kind of, um, you know, I've always, I've sewn growing up and I have done like every craft under the sun. I've at least tried or dabbled in for a while. Mm -hmm. And, but with sewing, I really want to make clothes like in the worst way. Like I, I just really want to get into it. And every time, you know, I go to the store and I pick up these patterns, you lay the pattern out and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. Like, and, and then the pattern might, might you, you go through, like I made a skirt. It was hilarious. I made a skirt like a year and a half ago and I was working with a plaid, which is never really a great idea when you don't have a lot of experience <laughs> and it doesn't line up and it looks all funky. So I made this skirt. It was like two sizes too big. And I thought I had measured everything carefully. Well, not really. I know. 
and then I looked at it and I'm like, I worked for like two days on that skirt and now I can't wear it, you know? So what your book does, and I'll let you describe it, but just, I mean, from my perspective, what I see is this is kind of like a manual and I did try to cheat. I tried to skip ahead to like a pattern later in the book and I was like, oh, and then I'm like, oh, but she's referring to a pattern earlier. And then at first I was like, well, that's not right. That's not fair. I want to make this. And then I'm like, wait a minute, Jennifer, my big, where my, I always get myself into trouble is when I try to skip ahead. And what I love about this book is you're kind of like walking people from basic, basic clothing making to something where you get a little fancier at the end. um, But at the same time, nothing in this book is completely unattainable. And, and, no. I, and I love that. I love the fact that I feel like, okay, if I just kind of take my time. And the cool part, too, is if I work my way through this book, which I'm hoping to start working on next week because I've had projects and it's just sitting here and I'm like, oh, I want to do this, this get started on the clothes making. What's yeah. really cool is you will then have quite a collection of your own handmade clothes that fit you. Absolutely. And I think that's just so great. So congratulations to you on, on this you. wonderful I'm achievement thrilled. here. Um, so tell me, your what was your inspiration for this particular book? It's funny how it all came to happen, and I never, ever in a million years, I don't know if I would have ever thought I would write a book at all, and I certainly would have never thought it would be a pattern-making book, <laughs> because I, and I certainly, this is going to sound funny, but I am by no means a master pattern maker, and I wouldn't even say it's, you know, one of the strongest skills I have. I'm not a great pattern maker, but what I realized is that, the like, the reason I call myself not a great pattern maker, and I even feel sort of traumatized by, you know, how I learned pattern making in college, and from what I've talked to students, even recently, who go to Parsons and FIT, and it sounds like it's exactly the same way. They teach it to you in this way that's very complicated, and it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't seem practical, and you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. You don't understand how pivoting the ruler two inches to the left relates to your body, and it just you know, it was all about all these historical garments and making all these, like, bust darts and double-ended darts and princess seams and Lego mutton sleeves and things that I've never worn anything containing any of those elements, you know? Like, we were teach- we were learning to make patterns for a museum or a costume, and... What I realized after years of teaching sewing and, you know, I've been making my own patterns for the clothes I sell for all this time, and people would say, oh, I wish you would teach pattern making because, you know, it's really hard to find sewing patterns that I like or that fit. And I would always say, oh, you know, I'm not the person to teach pattern making or I could never (laughs) teach that. It's way too complicated. And then one day, a light bulb just went on in my head as I was saying this, that I realized what we wear, the reason I can make the patterns for the clothes I sell is that they're very simple because what we wear today is generally some version of a knit top, you know, a Mm t-shirt, and 
or like a skirt is also very simple. And a dress is really just a combination of a top and a skirt. And I pretty much say, you know, the pants you can leave to the experts or, you know, eventually you can make some great fitting pants, but they're definitely not a beginner pattern making project. But what I realized is that the clothes we wear are very simple and they're not difficult at all to make your own patterns for. And really, if you just plot out your measurements on paper and connect the dots and make some curves, you know, you've got your pattern and it's not that difficult. So I realized that and that just led me to start actually teaching pattern making classes, which I I think I've been teaching pattern making for like five or six years. I'm not sure. But then um, I was giving a talk at the American Craft Council and a woman was there uh, in the audience and she came up to me after. Actually, she sent her assistant because she had to leave. But he gave me her card and he said, my boss, works for Potter Craft, and she wants to talk to you about writing a book, which, you know, it's kind of crazy, but it seems like that's just how it works in this craft book world. Mm -hmm. I think a fiction author would probably have a heart attack if they knew that people come up to us and offer, like, she didn't even know what the book should be about. She just thought that I could write a book, which Which is great, yeah. it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so we had lunch, and I said, you know, she said, have you ever thought about writing a book, and what would it be about? And I said, well, probably I would do a crochet book because that's, you know, my, my main things are crochet and sewing that I love to do, and I've always thought, you know, it might be fun to write a book, but I can't really think of an angle that hasn't been done that would be my special take on crochet or sewing. She's like, yeah, there's a lot of crochet and sewing books. You might hear some um, squawking because the chickens are... No, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. It gives us, it sets the scene a little bit. (laughs) It does. Um, So... She was like, yeah, I don't know if we need another crochet or sewing book right now. But she kept pumping me to dig deeper, and I was just sort of rambling, probably like I am now. And I said, you know, I was talking about the classes I teach, and and then it kind of hit me inside my head, but I was like, no, I cannot let those words come out of my mouth. But, of course, I can't actually stop words from coming out of my mouth. And I kept talking, and I said, you know what people have been begging me to write a book on for years, but I always say, no, no, it would be way too hard, is pattern making. And I saw her eyes light up. And I'm like, but I can't do it. It would be so impossible. It's really complicated. It's hard enough to even show people in person, much less try to write it into a book. And she just got more and more excited the more I said I, I couldn't do it. And <laughs> she was like, that's it. That's totally it. That's the book you have to write. And I was, like, hitting myself over the head. But she was right. And I'm so glad that I that it all just came to be because the world, I really think the world needs this book because there are pattern making books out there but they're the same kind that I used in college as a textbook and they make no sense 
they're as thick as a phone book, and they're just very complicated, and, and they don't, as far as I know, there isn't a pattern-making book that has, like, cute projects that are photographed and that you would want to make. Right. And, I mean, really, my the point of the book is not at all, in my opinion, for you to make the projects exactly that I made for the book. I, I really want people to learn how to make whatever they want to make. Right. But having... Some cute projects, I think, helps inspire people. And if they want to make the same ones I made, that's totally cool. Or, you know, they can also use them as a starting point and improvise and customize them to their own style. And the beauty of once you start making patterns, too, is you'll have, you know, a bunch of different sleeves and a bunch of different fronts and you can mix and match them as well if they all fit you and they're all, you know, based off of the same pattern that you start with, which is called a sloper, sort of a plain basic pattern of your body measurements. Then from that you can make a million variations and your library will start to grow exponentially with all the combinations you can make from the different pattern pieces. It's very cool. Well, and it's, I mean, and that is the beauty of it, is that once you put the work into where I think a lot of people, they kind of pause, they're like, oh, I have to make the pattern too. Um, But that's the price you pay. I mean, that's your investment in getting something that actually will fit you, which is beautiful, you know. I think the frustration that so many people who either learned to sew recently or people who've been sewing for years, they everyone reaches a point eventually where they want to make clothes and then they try to start finding patterns at the store and that's when they see that there just isn't a lot out there that's speaking to the new generation of sewers. There are a few companies that are making new patterns that are cool. Um, like Berta Style is amazing. There's a ton of great stuff there. But if, if you know, depending what you want to make, you know, each pattern company has its own style, and, you know, you may not find something that matches your style. And uh, there's also the fact that even if you find something you like, you know, like you said with the skirt you made, it may not fit you. And it can be hard when you don't really understand the pattern-making process. It's hard to measure a pattern and decide if it's going to fit you properly mm-hmm. until it's made. And it, Well, and it's hard to make the adjustments, too. Like, if you yeah. know if you know how a sleeve fits to the rest of the skirt or, you know, exactly. how, to, how to shape a, the bodice of a dress... You know, you can adjust things and not have it be a total train wreck, um, where if you're just going along with a pattern, you know, I don't think this is going to fit, but you have no idea how to fix it. It's just frustration central, you know, so... Yeah. So this is really cool. And do you intend then, you you really do intend then for people to kind of start at the beginning, kind of work their way through the book? Well, it only because it's going to make the most sense that way. I'm... I know that most people aren't going to do that, but... <laughs> well, it, no, I think that if they want to get the most out of it, and I'm, I'm definitely the kind of person that will skip around, but I, the more time I've spent with this book, I, you've sold me. 
on the idea, the whole concept of actually going from the first page to the last page as opposed to yeah. skipping around. Because with something it like this, yeah, and I just way. don't know. I mean, this is like uncharted waters for me. I don't know a lot about this. You know, if I open right. a crochet book and I've been crocheting my whole life, I can skip ahead or skip back. Exactly. Or, but this is different. And, and each yeah. thing builds on the previous project. So Yeah. And also, um, each, I mean, there are patterns for skirts, T-shirts, woven shirts, pants, and dresses. And within each of those, there are very detailed instructions on making just the most basic, simple version of each of those things. And then you've got your basic pattern that you can easily spin off into your variations. So within each of those categories, there's the one basic, and then there's the easy spin-off that might take you 15 minutes from the first one. So you can't really do those spin-off versions until you've made the basic pattern. Right. But you could definitely, like, make the basic shirt pattern before you've made the basic T-shirt pattern, you know? Right. You can skip... You can do the order of the chapters um, out of order more easily than you can. You can't really do the variations on something you haven't made the original of. But it's it's I I can't wait to see what happens when people start using the book. It's it only um, it's been two days now. It was Tuesday was the official release date, so. I think people are just starting to get it in their hands. I'm very, very excited to see what happens. Well, I think it's going to change a lot for a lot of sewers out there, because I know I'm not the only one that's felt kind of like, kind of stalled out in a way, you know, on the verge of what I hope is going to be like this really exciting next uh, decade of wild sewing, um, (laughs) where I'm going to be wearing some really really interesting get-ups and I won't blame those on you I mean the fabrics I choose and the crazy stuff I put together and when yeah. I added when I add an apron and you're like whoa I can't believe she added an apron to that um it's not Cal's fault this is my own I, no you thing. know what I I'm all for adding an apron <laughs> any I'm all for you know that's what's funny is that dressing crazy versus dressing plain or classic the the lines the seams are generally not that different it's it is more about like the prints and the right, colors exactly. and simple things like that how you put it all together so you know i i think in a way like this book is a little more classic sort of than my own personal style like i've never actually made a button-down shirt with a collar and cuffs before in my life. Because... Well, you wouldn't know that from your book because you you very um, expertly lay out how to go about this process. So. <laughs> well, I've always known how to make that kind of shirt. It's just not really it's not a what shirt I you, wear. The kind of, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted it to be accessible to everybody. And, you know, once you can make that shirt, then you can make, like, the... Um, I think it's called the Stella blouse. The the peachy colored blouse with the pin tucks is more the kind of woven shirt that I wear. Okay. And, you know, it's just I I'm hoping that everyone will be able to find a way to use the book to make exactly what they want. That's their own style. 
what I like about it is that you're covering a lot of different techniques and skills that if you know all these things in the book, then you're, you can go off-road and create some really, really interesting outfits. So I yeah, think... That's, that's what I hope people will do, you know. I, I'm, I would love to see people actually make the, the exact things in the book. Hopefully not, like, the same color, and <laughs> which, which I've heard people do. I can't relate, but I've heard people, like freak out if they can't find the same exact yarn and the same exact color or, you know, whatever's in a book that they buy. But I'm hoping truly what will excite me is when I see someone has made their own shirt or dress that they thought up in their head and that does not look like anything in my book. And but they made it because they read the book. That will be my version of success is when I see that. Well, I think this is going to be, I agree. I think it's going to be great to see what people do. Are you going to do a Flickr page? Yeah, I'm realizing I I obviously need to do that. And it's, it's all very surreal to me that the book has started shipping and, or that it, you know, someone could actually pick it up in a bookstore and buy it now. So, um, yeah, I do need to set up a Flickr page. Well, you have some that. time because people are kind of just getting it. I know I've, it'll, it'll, and I've had it for a couple a weeks. Months. Yeah, I've had it for a couple weeks and I haven't. Um, but it's been almost torturous to have it here cause, and not be able to have the time to you, do anything. I'm like, I oh, my gosh. Feeling. I think you do say in here where to get pattern paper. But what can people use? What works well? Well, looking to just kind of get started with what they have around. Um. I say exactly that in the book. I say that there's a list of supplies. There's really not much you need, actually, to make patterns. And I, I say that there are some things you may want to go to the store and get. However, you're probably, you know, if you're reading this book, you're probably getting excited and you want to start right now, and I don't blame you. And really, you probably have everything you need in your house already. Um, I don't even use the fancy pattern-making paper with the dots on it, Mm -hmm. which are actually letters, the blue letters. But I don't even use that paper. And, you know, if you want to go out and get it, that's fine, but... You can also use a brown paper grocery bag or really all you need is a paper, pencil, some scissors that will cut paper well, and a tape measure and a ruler. That's kind of the bare basics to get yourself started. And you probably, you know, I think everyone has something along those lines. I mean, they're all pretty basic supplies. The paper can also be like wrapping paper would work well. Um, If you have a pad of drawing paper, that's actually what I prefer is an 18 by 24 pad of either sketchbook paper or newsprint or just some kind of plain paper. And that's a good size that most pattern pieces will fit onto. And then you just tape two pieces together if you need a bigger piece. So it's just basic resourcefulness, so you don't need to, cause yeah. I, I think that's, that is one of the mistakes people sometimes make is they get super-duper excited, go out and buy, like, every professional pattern maker's tool and curve and everything that you could possibly buy, and then yeah. it's There's almost no overwhelming because then they have all these tools, and they're like, oh, I'm not really quite sure what to do now. Um, yeah. So There aren't even really that many tools, even if you 
were that kind of person and wanted to do that. You can't overwhelm There's yourself. There's not that much. And honestly, a lot of them you can't really find unless you go online or okay. unless you're in New York. But, like, the real kind of hip curves that I like, I don't think they sell at Joanne Fabrics or anywhere around most of the country. Okay. Um, but honestly, I also say you don't even need a hip curve or a curve. Like, it can almost be better to learn to trust your eye and sort of freehand those curves. So people are often intimidated to do that, but the curves can steer you wrong because people people rely on them too heavily and think that because it's like a fashion designer's ruler, it's going to have the perfect curve for everything they need, and that's not the case at all. Right, because your book is really all about tailoring you know, making your pattern so it fits you. So um, yeah. you have to kind of go more by your measurements than what yeah. the angle of the curve Everybody's and all that. Everybody's different. Are you going to go on a on a book tour? There's not going to be a, much of a tour. Apparently um, the economic cutbacks have sort of cut back on the whole idea of book tour. But um, I, I believe I'm doing a blog tour, which is the new version. <laughs> Yeah, I've participated in a number of those. And, you know, it it does get the word around to the craft community. Possibly even more successfully. Well, because you're reaching your niche, exactly. You know, um, instead of waiting in um, a bookstore in in Pittsburgh somewhere and hoping that somebody heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. So. So that's fine with me. I didn't, you know, I didn't. Well, I don't want to say I didn't want to go to Pittsburgh. I was just going to say <laughs> No, 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 no offense to anybody in Pittsburgh. I, no. I would have loved to, you know, go everywhere. Oh, but yeah, well, it's exciting. Right now, I, I wasn't sure how that was going to work out anyway. Well, especially when you're buying really, a farm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot to do here. Yeah. So um, I think a blog tour is much better. And I'm going to try to schedule some classes around the country, you know, this year and maybe do some little book events in conjunction with classes. Yeah, well, I hope you you do. I think people would really get out. Well, people enjoy getting a chance to meet you in person, too. I think that kind of enhances the experience of, you know, um, if you follow somebody's career, you follow someone's blog or you read their book. It's always great to get to meet them in person. So that will be fun for people. Now, where you I know you teach at several places now, but if you have any upcoming workshops or classes coming up um, that people could sign up for. I don't know if those are some things you want to mention. Well, if they look at my website, which is actually called hodgepodgefarm.net, because hodgepodge is my clothing label, and I I named the website Farm years ago, even (laughs) long before that. (laughs) I knew I wanted one, but it was sort of just an imaginary farm for a long time. I actually... I just switched the blog over to my website, and it's all being consolidated right now. So that reminds me that I need to make a classes page for okay. it. Okay. Well, we'll tell but, people just to kind of keep an eye on your website if yeah, they want to know. Yeah, it'll all be there. I, I, I announce the classes every month and where they are, but I don't have a page dedicated to it. But And now I have a new venture upstate, which is called Double Knot Studio, dot com that's 
the classes that we're trying to spread the word about in the Hudson Valley area. But I still teach in Brooklyn at um, a couple different places, HOMAC, Brooklyn General, my friend's store, Treehouse, and the studio of Lena Corwin, who's a big craft blogger. Mm-hmm. So um, those, it's all on my website, though. People can find out everything they ever wanted to know about me. Well, tell me a little bit about your new venture, the newest um, thing you're doing. The new venture is... A friend of mine, Jill Draper, who's also, we actually met through Etsy, which is kind of fun because I moved up here and I didn't, you know, know anybody and I especially didn't know any, like, crafty cohorts. I was actually reading the website Heart Handmade and she had a series of, like, the process of makers and People would break down how long it took to make something, which I found very interesting. And there was one on Jill Draper, and she spins yarn, which is something I also love to do. So it caught my eye. And then I looked at her Etsy shop, and I saw in the location section that it said she was in Kingston, which is about 25 minutes away from where I live. So I thought, aha, I'm just going to email this person. I have no idea who she is, but... I thought, you know, she might know. I had heard there was a spinning guild up here, and I thought maybe she'd know some good yarn stores. So I just emailed her out of the blue and said, you know, hey, I just moved up here. Do you have any thoughts? Do you know anything about the spinning guild, et cetera? And she wrote back, and she, turns out, had moved up from Brooklyn also about a year ago. And we just have so much in common. So she's teaching knitting and hopefully eventually she's going to do dyeing and spinning and I'm going to teach crochet and sewing and we're calling ourselves a roving craft school for the moment because we don't have a home base location but we're going to teach in cafes and community spaces and various places around the area so that we can just reach out to lots of different people and you know, we're very excited about it. It's just getting off the ground this month and next month, but we're excited about it. I think it's a very clever business model, too, in the sense that you're not jumping into a space that you have to pay overhead for. You can kind of... No overhead. Yeah, I mean, because that's one of the things that I, like, probably once every two weeks, I will say to my husband, <laughs> you know, it'd be really fun to have a place, you know, and then he says, well, do you really want to be there all the time? And I'm like, well, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, my dream though, is to have a, a, a like have my little farm and then yeah. have like a exterior building that we could yeah. be kind of like a meeting place, but not, you know, so if it's, my house is messy, then, you know, exactly. try to keep That's, one thing clean. I'm working on that plan. Too. Yeah. But no, I love the idea of just having a you know, because when I teach, I kind of go around. I don't have any organized space that I teach in. I just kind of go where there are students and mm-hmm. teach them something. And um, mm-hmm. I always ask people this, and I feel like I'm almost, in a way, devaluing the current project. But do you have another – I mean, do you plan to do more books? I mean, is this something that you really like and you want to continue doing? I loved writing the book, and I, I, I definitely would love to write more um, – I haven't really been pushing anything at the moment just because I know that it's kind of a tough time in the publishing world. Right. So I was just kind of waiting to see what happens when this one comes out. But I, 
you know, if anyone will let me, I definitely plan to publish more books. Well, I don't know if you have any final words of inspiration for people <laughs> that are going to start pattern making for the first time. Just that people just shouldn't be afraid, you know, like it's, there's kind of a stigma, I think, about pattern making that it is really hard. And I know I, I fell for it too <laughs> for a long time, but really, you know, it's, it's not difficult. It, it'll take a little bit of a time investment, but anyone can do it. And I think it will open up such a world of possibilities with sewing that, that people just don't, even if you find a pattern from a store that you like and that seems to fit you, figuring out all the instructions and all the pieces can, it really throws a lot of people. And I think people should not be afraid to try to make their own because it's it's amazing, you know, what you can do. And you don't need a fancy pattern to make a lot of really cool clothes. Well, I think that's great news for all of us rookies out there. I do have one question about just patterns in general, and this is something that throws me off. You're, as you were talking about people being kind of like intimidated, the question, the thing that always stops me in my tracks and actually will lead me to buy two, the same pattern in two sizes, I seem to fall in between. Yeah. You know, and I look and I'm like, oh, yes, yes, the boobs are not that big. And then it's like, you know, and then, then the, the bottom half, I'm like, oh, I need to have a little a couple more inches there. So I'm standing there feeling like, you know, you're in the store looking at, you know, you're in front of the pattern, uh, little filing cabinet there. Yeah. Just feeling kind of bad about your measurements that you're not like a, a, a model, you don't have model proportions. And then, yeah. um, so I end up, I always, I get to the point where I'm trying to make a dress and I'm like, okay, so do I have the top half from the smaller pattern and the, the, the bottom half of the dress from the bigger pattern? I mean, how am I supposed to be resolving this? What you can do is, whether it's all one pattern piece or if the top and the skirt part of it are separate pieces, you can actually do what you said and use the top from one and the bottom from the other, but you have to blend them. You have to... Like, if it's all one piece, it's easier to understand because you would draw a line from the correct size on the top to the correct size at the bottom, but it has to be a smooth line that will, you know, adjust from one to the other without a big... wad of fabric. ...conjunct. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then if it's two separate pieces, you know, they obviously have to match up. So you would still make that same kind of line you know, by holding the two pattern pieces together and right. making them connect smoothly. But but I know it's actually a simple adjustment, but it, it seems very overwhelming when you're looking at that pattern with all the different sizes and lines on it. Yeah, and, and I just had the strangest experiences at the checkout, too, where you, like, you have, like, two patterns in two sizes and you might have like a stack of like other like maybe some apron patterns or things that aren't you don't need multiple sizes well you know at the dollar sale and the clerk will say um ma'am and i'm like 33 and when people call me ma'am it still kind of freaks me out even though people have been calling me ma'am forever you know but they're like ma'am um do you realize that you have the same pattern in two different sizes and then I'm like I can't I'm kind of like what you said I can't stop words from coming out of my mouth and then I go into this long like explanation of how 
yeah, well, the top's, like, too big and the bottom's too small. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm telling these people essentially I'm, like, have some kind of deformity or I'm, you know. And then, I mean, then they're just kind of looking at me like, well, that's kind of sad. But, I mean, and, of course, I take it in a way that they're probably yeah, totally imagining. fine with it. Exactly. Like, so I suddenly, then I walk out of the store feeling like a complete nut job and I go home and I'm too overwhelmed to even <laughs> try to, like, figure out how to connect the top to the bottom. Next time they say, ma'am, are you aware that you have this pattern in two? Just say yes and leave it at that. <laughs> I know. I wish I could just leave it at that, you know, because my life would be so much simpler if I could just answer like a yes or no question with a yes or no response. My biggest problem is I never usually do that. I usually add some explanation to it. Tanks me every time. But, um, <laughs> but well, I, I appreciate this. Just having you explain that. I mean, this gives me a better sense of, like, what I can do. But I'm going to just scrap the patterns for a while and make my own. Good. And see if I'm, I think I'm going to have better luck. So I'm excited well, about that. I'm going to be saying paper. I'm keeping tabs on you to see what you <laughs> Just check in, and then you'll be like, oh, boy, wow. You know, <laughs> she needs to take my well, class. I'm very – I'm impressed with everything people do. I, I think – People shouldn't be too hard on themselves. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where once you do get the hang of it, like riding a bike, it seems like a huge, massive challenge at the beginning, but then, you know, it's second nature. So I hope to get to that point where... I don't even think there's even the hurdle of learning to ride a bike because when I teach pattern making as a four-week class, the first week we make the skirt pattern, and then... I tell them as homework to cut out a muslin or a first sample from their pattern and bring it back the second week. And everyone's skirt usually fits totally fine. And then the second week, they make the T-shirt pattern, and they do the same thing. They make a sample of the T-shirt for the third week. And when they bring back their T-shirts, they are usually totally perfect as well. So I've seen... I've seen it all in action mm-hmm. before, and you know, basically, what I'm telling people is exactly what's in the book, and people usually do just fine. So that might also be encouraging to hear because you know, people might be thinking like it's all uncharted territory when they buy this book, but I've seen it in action over and over, and almost everyone's skirts and t-shirts completely. You know, they might need the slightest bit of adjustment, but in general, they work. So I think anyone can do it. Well, I'm glad you did this book. So thanks again for your contribution (laughs) to the craft world here. And good luck with the farm. Thanks. Special thanks to Cal Patch for sharing her time and her story with all of us. I hope that you feel inspired now to go out and sew some new clothes for yourself. I know I can't wait to sew some new clothes for myself. Right now, the biggest challenge is time. I have no excuses, though, now, because I have Cal to help me. I go page by page. She's right there with me for all these projects, which I really appreciate. So go check out that title, and why don't you head over to craftsanity.com and get in the drawing to win a copy of Cal's book. Just leave a comment about the interview, and what would be really great is if you wanted to tell us what you want to make. Can't wait to read your responses. I always enjoy reading comments from listeners, so I really appreciate those of you who have made that a practice to come on out and comment. That's wonderful. And in this case, you get a chance to get something back, which is a a great book. So we'll see you all over there at craftsanity.com. 
As usual, if you have any comments for me, you can email me, jennifer at craftsanity.com, and I will respond as quickly as I can. Uh, I want to thank, once again, this episode's sponsor, the talented artists and designers over at Etsy Dallas. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. And they want to invite you all to the Jingle Bash, which is going to be Saturday, November 21st from 1 to 7 p.m. at the Sons of Herman Hall at Exposition. That's in Dallas, Texas. The Jingle Bash is going to feature quality handmade goods from over 50 local artists and designers. And this is just in time for all your holiday shopping. In addition, the Jingle Bash is going to include music, a full bar, a free raffle, and the first 50 shoppers are going to receive silkscreen reusable grocery totes full of handmade goodies. Admission is free. Jeez, what more can you ask for? (laughs) If Michigan wasn't so far from Dallas, I would uh, be heading over to check this out. Fantastic. I have to basically uh, increase my... uh, podcast revenue a little bit before I can get that private jet to fly out for events like this spontaneously. But thanks again to Etsy Dallas for your support. I really appreciate it. If you would like to become a sponsor of the Craft Sanity Podcast, please visit the sponsors link, which is at the top left of the page, or you can send me an email. And I really appreciate your support because without your support, this show would be a lot harder to produce. Well, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Craft Sanity. I really appreciate that. I'm going to be back soon with a podcast. Uh, Next time it's going to be a knitting podcast. So this will be an update from a knitter that we've heard from previously. And then I'm going to be recording a new batch of podcasts. So if you have some suggestions, get those in. I think I'll include a very short after show. So after the music plays, if you want to stick around, you can hear what's going on in my crafty life or else turn it off now. I'll never know the difference. In the meantime, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Okay, I am staying super busy making looms for my little peg loom project that I the Etsy shop that I started over the summer. It was kind of a spontaneous business expansion which I never really planned on and I told you guys in previous episodes about that so I won't bore you with the story now but this month I'm hoping to just kind of try to ramp up production as much as I can so I'll have looms from the tiny ornament size pot holder looms so you can have a little Christmas ornament pot holder hanging from your tree or you can use the little squares to make garlands which are really fun, all the way up to pot holder size, giant pot holder size, giant squares to make bags and rugs, placemats, and then the rug loom, which is a 30 by 38 loom, which is the, the biggest one. And um, so I'm, yeah, I'm making a lot of looms and really enjoying that. I wish I was weaving on the looms a little more. So I'm kind of struggling with that balance, which I'm sure a lot of you who have handmade businesses wrestle with quite a bit yourself because you know, you want to be able to have a business and you want to have people buying your product. So you, you know, you keep making your product, but you know, if you really love to sew, maybe you're sewing for your job, keep your business going, but you're not sewing like a skirt or a blouse or something fun for yourself or a new handbag for you. You're selling handbag, you're making handmakes to sell to other people. (laughs) So it's kind of a blessing and a curse to be able to do something you love, but it takes away from the other time, you know, the free time that you would have to make things, but that's the constant you know, struggle with handmade businesses. So, so yeah, that's been kind of interesting how I'm like, oh, I'm sending these looms places and I 
want to just sit down and make something myself right now. So it takes a little discipline to stay on task. It's been a craft overload going on over here. Well, we had Halloween and I made a cat costume and mermaid costume. And the mermaid costume was kind of fun because that was out of, I used foam, quilted foam for the fin. And there was a front and back. So it was kind of like Amelia was sandwiched in between these two fins. And uh, it turned out pretty good. So better than I actually expected. And I actually was inspired by a woman that I met at a recent uh, charity quilt bee for Margaret's Hope Chest here in Grand Rapids. I hosted a couple quilt beads at the Y. And someone came. We got chatting about Halloween costumes. And she talked about how she made this quilted mermaid fin. And uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to try that. She just made one to go in the back. And then she had the child wear tights in the front. But it was kind of cold. So I thought, you know, I'm going to have two and kind of sandwich, like tie it on the side. So I think I'll use that probably as a maybe a um, costume TV demonstration for next year. I uh, got to do some cool Day of the Dead crafts, which was fun. And now I'm on to Christmas. I'm doing a couple Christmas workshops, uh, handmade holiday workshops over in the Detroit area this month. And I'd like to do some in Grand Rapids too, but I haven't done a whole lot with trying to like let people know that I'm interested in doing that. Uh, I will throw this out there. I don't know how many listeners I have in the metro Detroit area, but on Saturday, November 7th, I'm going to be at the Fraser Public Library. I'm going to teach a kids' craft session at 1.30 and then followed by an adult session at 3. The adult session at 3 is going to be basically some ideas for handmade crafting for the holidays. And um, this will be, you know, ranging from decorations to hostess gifts and just a variety of things that are pretty inexpensive and fairly quick to to put together. And we're going to have some projects on hand that people can make and take home. So that will be fun. My mom is going to be there to help me out, which will be really fun because I don't get to see her all the time because we live two and a half hours apart. So it'll be fun to be crafting with my mom at this workshop. And uh, my sisters might make some cameo appearances as well. We'll see what they're up to on Saturday. I think they're doing reservations. It's a free workshop, so you don't have to pay to go. If you want to email me, jennifer at craftsanity.com, and let me know you're coming, I can get your name on the list and make sure I have enough supplies to bring. So yeah, I hope to see some of you there. That would be actually quite a thrill for me. I love to meet people that listen to the show. It's kind of weird for me. I feel like I have imaginary friends when I talk into this microphone. In my head, it's as if I think, oh no, nobody's really listening to this. But you are. <laughs> and it's still, after four years almost, it still is a bit surprising to me at times. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah. So anyway, if you're in town, in the Detroit area, stop on by. And yeah, I don't think I have anything else to share at this point. I'm just staying as busy as I can with uh, freelance assignments and um, do, trying to take time to do a little more designing. Kind of working my way through a list of projects I've been hoping and wanting to complete. So I'm carrying my sketchbook around and jotting down ideas. And I really recommend that, that if you really want to have the inspiration flow and capture those moments when you get this idea, Try to have a little notebook with you as often as you can. You can get little pocket size, even those little tiny steno pads that you could keep in your pocket and write things down. Because sometimes, you know, I get these ideas all the time and a lot of times I don't have paper. You know, it's really frustrating when this happens when I'm running and I don't have any paper. And I'm like, oh man, I, I gotta hope, I hope I can remember. And sometimes it won't be until I'm running again in that very spot 
that I'll, I'll be like, oh, yeah. And usually if I remember it again, you know, a second time, I'll, I'll be able to commit it to memory. But my word. Uh, speaking of running, I'm, after a summer of not competing, uh, I was going to, uh, let's see, in the fall we were doing soccer games for Abby and uh, ballet for the kids. Um, you know, I didn't do, I didn't compete myself because it just seemed like totally inappropriate for me to be like, you know, so how'd Abby's soccer game go? I have no idea. I was out running a race. You know, I, I really had to shift my focus now that my children are old enough to be in their own events. You know, I dedicated my time to taking them to their events and, and didn't compete myself. I also did it to save money too. I mean, honestly, it's, uh, running can get kind of expensive, but I'm still investing in running shoes so I can, um, keep training and, kind of ramping up my mileage again. Uh, I would like to do the 25K Riverbank run here. Kind of like to ramp my mileage up as the winter settles in. I don't know why, but it makes me feel, I don't know, warmer. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm still running and um, I, I think I need to try to find a running group to kind of, I'd love, I'd love to be able to train with some other people. However, um, my schedule is so nutty that, you know, I don't think you know, I could spontaneously train with a group. So, so I run alone most of the time, but, um, if you have some good music on, it gets you through those miles or you can listen to podcasts. It seems like your mind's distracted by a story. You don't realize that you just run five miles. So anyway, well, I think I've rambled on long enough here. Um, I'd love to hear from you. If any of you have any comments or suggestions, uh, love to hear from you. If any of you, um, are in the West Michigan area or in Michigan in general, drop me a line. The wheels are turning. I haven't figured out exactly what I'm going to do next, but I have some ideas about some more collaborative projects that I'd like to get involved in and get off the ground after the holidays. And um, I haven't forgotten about the international granny tag. I have not forgotten about that. I've just had some other things I've had to move up on the priority list. So um, stay tuned for more details on that. And uh, yeah, so I think I'm going to really sign off now. So I'll be back soon. Have a good week. And I'll see you next week with a knitting podcast. Until then. Craft Sanity.